Hi, so this is the 13th episode of the Storming Mortal podcast, which is the English offshoot of a show I do here in Slovenia, which is part of a podcast network I created that now consists of uh, six shows. If there is anything you liked here and you'd like to support my work and the work of my colleagues here in Slovenia, you can donate via PayPal if you go to stormingmortal.com slash support. Every dollar we get will just use to buy equipment and stuff like that. So if you can spare a couple of bucks, that'd be great. Uh, I also welcome all kinds of feedbacks. So, you know, if you have something to say, you can email me at hello at stormingmortal.com or just tweet at me. I'm on Twitter. I'm at AtomicXX. Other than that, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I talked to Glenn Fleischman. So here's Glenn and me talking. I, I guess we'll start. Okay. I'm good. So I've been practicing. So let me try this. Andrzej Tomic. Yeah. Oh, that was, that was close. Good. That uh, was tell, close. tell me, say it, say it for me. Okay. It's Andrzej Tomic. Andrzej Tomic. Yeah, Andrzej, okay, yeah. Andrzej yeah, okay, that, that sounds better. I, <laughs> I was practicing a, um, a Serbian, Serbian accent because I did this radio play with the, the Incomparable where I was playing Nikola Tesla. And so I. I heard that, yes. Yeah, so I, listening, I listened to Serbians, and I, uh, but it's funny, he apparently had a high pitched voice, and I tried to do this low, growly thing. So I know, I know Slovenian is a different language than Serbian. However, I had a friend who was in Ljubljana for uh, an exchange program, and he came back in high school and said, uh, there are no obscenities in Slovenian. They have to borrow from Croatian to swear, to really swear. Yeah, that is, wow, that is so, that is the absolute truth, <laughs> honestly. No, I love that. No, see, the, the profanities we do have are so lame. Like, I, there's one where we basically just say, uh, this is, this is gonna sound like we really are living in like the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> We have one, the literal translation, well, it's the only translation. It's like uh, 300 hairy bears. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that, that's supposed to be uh, a, like a swear, I guess. or a, like a, You're supposed to yell that at somebody that did something wrong. Well, so it's Slovenian, it makes no it, sense. Is Slovenian yeah. a Slavic language? Does it belong to... It's not, it's, yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah, yeah. But Croatian is closer to Russian, as I understand. Right? It's closer in the family. Because my understanding is Russian has... Um, I read a book, an introductory Russian textbook once, and it said, do not attempt to swear in Russian because their mother curses are so severe, they are so far beyond what you think of as obscenities oh, yeah. in English that you will offend people and you could even get hurt. And I was wondering if there's that split, if like Slovenian is uh, you know, more gentle and that Croatian is closer to Russian and has these extreme insults that you don't have available to you. Well, sort of. Oh, that's, you see, the, the thing is like Serbia and Croatia, while the language is similar, mm-hmm. uh, Serbia is more of the orthodox vein of Christianity mm-hmm. and Croatia is Catholic. Mm-hmm. So, but it's the same language. So oh, I, I, I get, I get. Well, the, I say the same. Like if anybody here heard me say that, like, <laughs> <laughs> that would not go over well. But, uh, like you have a couple of words that you kind of have to be careful with. But yeah, it's basically the same. Language. And Slovene is sort of it's still a Slavic uh, language, mm-hmm. but we uh, ours pretty. Uh, maybe unique's not the right word, but I'll put it here like this: like Serb- we all understand Serbian and Croatian, yes, right, and they do not yeah. understand us. Very and it's not just the fact that we're smaller and stuff, and the, uh, how Yugoslavia was structured. It, it, re- our language is like it is different. Like it, I, I it's kind of hard to explain. You know, it's like a nuanced thing, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it, there's 
uh, the difference is at least that big that you it, it kind of gets lost on their well, end. You when know? I, I was in Switzerland a, a few times, uh, not for huge periods of times, once for several weeks, and um, I know that's the thing. I, I meet Switzer, I meet people speak Switzerdeutsch in um, in America, and I'll hear people speaking. I, I had seven or eight years of German, and I was fluent at one point, um, but I can still, in a pinch, I can speak it. I will start talking to someone, and and actually words will come back. And uh, I'll be around Seattle, and I'll hear someone speaking, and I'm like, I should understand what they're saying, and I do not. And I'll often am friendly guy. I'll say, excuse me, are you from Switzerland? They'll say, how do you know? And I said, because you're speaking a language I feel like I should understand. I don't. And they laugh and we talk about Lucerne or something like that. I, I was in Basel mostly. So in, in every uh-huh. city in, uh, I don't know if this is true in Slovenia, every city in Switzerland just about really has a local dialect. You can't be understand oh, people from Basel, yeah. cannot understand people from Lucerne and so forth to an extent that I, I, I knew was true for in some countries for certain kinds of local dialect, but Switzerland, it's extreme, and they only have the official languages they learn in school and they use officially, but everyone really intensely speaks their local dialect, like their city dialect, practically. Yeah, well, it's it's not that bad. Here. There is a region here where I, I just, like, nobody understands those people. Like, it's the, <laughs> no, seriously, like, the no, like, I think it's the northeast of the country. You, you, you know how, what Slovenia looks like, mm-hmm. because it looks like a chicken, basically. Oh. Right? So... <laughs> No, seriously, just look it up in Google Maps. It looks like a chicken, but, you know. Uh, oh, I see what you so, mean. Oh, that's hilarious. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, it really does. <laughs> so the, the, the head part, right, where the beak is and everything, yes. that's – those people, I mean, when they talk to each other, I swear that just sounds like it's not Slovene. It's like it's on the border with Hungary. So it's sort of like has like Hungarian influences mm-hmm. and stuff. But I just and Hungarian is related to it's what the Turco. Uh, it's a Finnish relative, right? Yeah, Hungarian yeah. Which is yeah. That's oh god, I'm so, I can talk all day about language. I have, I'm like a uh, what do you, I don't know what call linguophile. I'm not a polyglot. I don't speak. I, I ha- speak a little bit of a bunch of languages and German best after English. But um, I, I, there's something about the persistence of of dialect and language in the face of like, you know, global culture and everything. I just think is, is like the ultimate human thing that we want to speak what our mother tongue is and we want to preserve it. I think it's great. Yeah. Well, you, you'd love us. There's <laughs> 2 million. <laughs> Slovenia is basically 2 million people and we have a language that's, I mean, I, 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 I do not wish anybody, like, I don't wish it on anybody to learn. Oh, it. that's it's so funny. Well, and then there's, you know, there's Romance in Switzerland, which has, I think only, uh, what is it? So like thirty thousand native speakers, but it's an official Swiss language. It was preserved to get Graubunden in and so forth. But that it's like this linguistic story of you know cultural hegemony. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's Europe's weird when you think about it. Like I, it's but yeah, but like Slovene has the duality, you know. So you have like a, a, a and we have six cases. So you know, um, that's not like, so uh, bad. That's not well, yeah, it's Icelandic not, is what well, twenty nine. I think you can't learn Icelandic if you're not from there. Well, yeah, but the Scandinavians. Oh, yeah. Crazy. yeah. The, I talked. I talked about that with Merlin. That's just ridiculous. It's too much. Even the the, they should the alphabet is just yeah. <laughs> it just gets. I don't know. I, I'm, we're gonna talk about the O with the line through it again. That's what I, I heard don't. <laughs> I don't know. It's just. But I think. I mean, this is you know. I think language is a way you express culture, and it gets preserved when the culture is being preserved and vice versa. When languages die out or people lose that sort of cultural diversity and sort of blend together. I mean, America is this melting pot and we all sort of speak the same. We all think we speak the same language. And, you know, occasionally like I'll be in England and I'll think, I'll think we're not really speaking the same language. We think we are because most of the words are the same, but culturally it's so different that we're not expressing the same concepts all the time, but we think we are. You can get huge misunderstandings from that too. Yeah. And like, um, and, but over here, like the European Union, 
you know, uh, in the parliament, mm-hmm. they they want to preserve like each language yeah. of all the member states, yeah. and it's gotten like to this point where it's just ridiculous. You can just have like translators all over the place in Brussels because everybody gets to talk in their own language, mm-hmm. right? So it just gets weird because now like the EU is, keeps expanding and just keep adding more people, <laughs> and the parliament has like seven hundred MPs, and then you have to have translators to kind of service all of that, you know? Oh, I kind of love it that. Just too, gets, well, in Lithu- Lithuanian is Lithuanian is the closest living language to um, Sanskrit. Oh, <laughs> or, okay. Yeah, it, people's uh, linguists will go to philologists will go to uh, to uh, Lithuania to, if, because it's it's Indo-European and it, beca- it left was left. Uh, much more preserved in Lithuania than anywhere else, but Latvia and Estonia have languages that are much further off the tree. So Lithuania, for some reason, became slightly frozen, but it has there's a lot of things apparently in common with the the structure of Sanskrit. It's just bizarre. You're like, how, or the Finnish Hungarian thing. You're like, okay, the Finns. Now wait, where did the Magyars go? And uh, but it tells you know it tells the story of migration. You, they're using language almost like DNA to track where people went to. And I, I don't know. They did this. Uh, the New York Times, uh, the most po- I think it was the most popular thing they published. I forget in ni- 2013. Uh, was this interactive thing? You would you would go in and you fill out this survey. It was based on some uh, academic research. And you'd answer questions about what do you call a, a long sandwich on a roll, and uh, do you call it a sack or a bag? And there's all these really cultural things. And at the end, it would say um, you're most likely from this area. And I filled it out. And I live in Seattle. I grew up mostly on the West Coast. And um, it said you're from upstate New York. And my parents both grew up in upstate New York. I haven't lived there since I was three, but apparently I talk like <laughs> my parents. I mean, it was within like a hundred mile radius. Of oh, no, it's like a, like a small, like an area area, not just upstate New York. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, they would put a map with like a heat map that would show. And I thought this is crazy. And other people, some people reported it being, you know, giving them a, a broad area. And other people were like, this is practically the city I was born in. Oh, wow. Like, how does this work? Because we have, we don't think of ourselves in America. We know there's like people will say, pop in one part of the country and soda in another or sack and bag or grinder hoagie subway poor boy like they're all words for sandwiches like we have all these things but we think like oh isn't that cute it's like um spanner and flashlight in england and america but in fact they're in such there's a, a whole array of regional typifiers that they were able to use to actually get you to that tiny an area it was really interesting so it was a huge uh, is a very interesting thing for the New York Times to do because it was one of their, I think, their most popular or one of their most popular uh, features in 2013, and it wasn't writing; it was an interactive test almost that that surprised people. Oh, I'm gonna find a link to that because that sounds yeah okay. <laughs> okay, so now I'm gonna give you my first question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very murdered. Okay, so my first question is always the same. So, <laughs> who are you and what do you do after 12 oh, minutes? <laughs> well, I uh, I'm Glenn Fleischman. I'm a uh, uh, most, I, mean, I think of myself still as a freelance writer, but I'm really largely a publisher and editor these days. I was a writer, and I still am a writer for over 20 years um, doing technology stuff, and I program uh, in some scripting languages, and I build systems, and um, right now, like, my, I guess the, the thing I do most is, uh, is put out the magazine, which was founded by Marco Arment, and... Um, uh, he sold it to me several months ago, and I've been working on a. We did a Kickstarter to put out a book of um, some of the best stuff we put out in our electronic issues, and uh, and also write for the Economist, and I dabble in other stuff too. Still do some programming, but most mostly a writer, largely an editor. Editor, I guess. Yeah, and that, like publishing is one of those things I sort of like to talk to you about because the magazine, yeah. the magazine is. It sh- it, the, the, ma- the magazine shouldn't work in my head like that. It shouldn't sort of be like viable, I guess, 
Because when Marco said at the start what, what he was going to do, I just could not wrap my head around that. And maybe that's because I'm from around here where like there's not a critical mass of people, you know, that would actually pay uh, for like, and the articles are great, by the way, but like that would pay for that. No, I understand. Yeah, but like I just yeah. could not. So, so I just wanted to like, before, even be, like before, you're the publisher now, but even before uh, Marco sold it, uh, sold, sold the magazine to you, like, like how did you see that? How, was it like an experiment or did you know it kind of had, it had legs, as you guys like to say? I, I still think it's an experiment. I mean, it's not, I want to say like, you know, I've been blunt about it at times. It's not like, um, in its early times, it was very successful initially, and then we sort of settled down. And it's been it's been a hard road to hoe, as we also say. Um, it's it's not a it's not a. Um I want to say it's not like massively profitable and it's this wonderful thing that works perfectly. It's more like I'm still testing out ideas. Like one of the issues is uh, the critical mass you mentioned. It's, it's an issue. You know, there's, there's X hundred million people with iOS devices who speak English and many of them as a primary language and some as a secondary. So conceivably, we're, we're on sale in like almost every store and we have subscribers in, I don't know, I think I have 15 or 18 iTunes stores we've got subscribers in. So uh, conceivably, even if it was just, you know, Americans and Canadians and Australians and people in, in England, which is where most of our, our subscribers are, that's a huge audience. But the, the disconnect continues to be how do we um, – uh, people get this thing I want to call subscription or subscriber fatigue. Like they – they subscribe and they read a bunch of issues and they forget to read it. Maybe they come back and then they're like, oh, there's so much unread. And, you know, I've read all this kind of stuff. I, I don't need to subscribe to this anymore. It's two bucks a month. And, and so I'm done. And that's totally understandable. And, and, um, and I do that as a subscriber to publications too. So you get a churn. People leave because they, uh, even if they really like the publication, it's just not what they want to read and pay for anymore. And, you know, paying, charging people two bucks a month is an ongoing thing. And Apple notifies them. Uh, before they're billed every month. So uh, so part of the issue of running a publication like this first was initially attracting a ton of people. Done. Easy. It was very successful. Next is replacing those people constantly. And that is actually a real challenge, um, is figuring out how to market and find new people when the spotlight isn't on this as a new venture. And so I've been trying a, a lot of different things. The book was one thing, and that brought in a different uh, slight overlap but a different audience and, and a bunch of money to produce a really nice book. Um, but it wasn't massively profitable either. It was really to fund development and, um, and, and make the book and have something to sell after the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, we were working with Medium, uh, which was, uh, they pay for content based partly on readership. Uh, and um, that's been a way to try different kinds of things that we haven't put in issues. Uh, and I keep looking for other ways to, to not be totally beholden to um, Apple and the iTunes store, including, you know, we sell subscriptions directly to the website that you can use in the app. But um, it's not, I mean, you, you know, what your your question about, you know, how is this viable is a great one because it's not, uh, it's not a slam dunk. I, the, he, here's the big thing, I think, is uh, there are certainly publications that they have a print version and they have a marketing arm and they have, you know, maybe they get 20 million people a month to their website. And when they do an e-publication, they've maybe largely or entirely paid already for all the content that's in it and they're republishing it. And they already have a programming staff and they already have a way to say, hey, you like us in print or you like our website, get the app too. We have none of that. And, and that over time has proven to be a real difficulty when um, we've got no way to market ourselves uh, outside of the app itself and our website. Uh, and so that's, that's an ongoing challenge. So I don't know how it'll how it'll end because it's still an experiment, but I'm still uh, I'm still trying shifting 
sums of money around and trying different variables and just seeing what clicks with people to keep them on board and and get new people on board. Yeah, but see, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the because uh, I'm I'm the online editor for a magazine here now. That's that's my job now. Mm. <laughs> that's oh, that's yeah. That, that's sort of what I. That's why I want to talk to uh, talk to you about this stuff some more. And like, but it's interesting because you you mentioned that I I always sort of had the feeling that if you have a print magazine, that's always going to be sort of like baggage in the online on in the online world. You know, even if you do just the app for the magazine or stuff like that. But like the way you just described it, sort of makes like the the existing infrastructure of print media sort of does help in the online world as well. And like. Is that is that fair to say, or I think so? I think it, well, it's a marketing engine. So um, there, there's this problem in America, which I think is probably different in every other country. Is there's this uh, group uh, that audits magazine circulation so that advertisers can confirm that the rate they're paying based on readership is accurate, and it's a it's a group I think. Uh, owned by and run by uh, publications, but there's and it's generally considered very honest. I think they've had maybe they've had some conflicts about numbers in the past, but but you know it has to work. And if it didn't work, advertisers would be upset and they would take their money elsewhere or they would start their own group or whatever. So this audit group, uh, I think it's still called the Audit Bureau of Circulation, something or was called that. They um, they insist that. Uh, a digital version of a publication in order to be counted is a digital replica. It has to be almost exactly like the print version, which is a huge constraint and a huge mistake. Um, and I think it's been a fundamental problem with the development of magazine apps from print publications is because they are beholden to the ad rates in print, which are still lucrative oh, wow. compared to online, they can't afford to break that model. So they don't do something revolutionary. You'll see this with like the Atlantic came out, and I don't know how this app is doing it all, but they came out with an app that was very the magazine like and very much like other stuff. And I don't feel like they were copying, but I think they were native, native, weak, something like that. Uh, publication that content there's some original some archive some from their blog and the idea there i think was it was not beholden it was stuff that was mostly published so they could have a new format in which to deliver it to people who wanted a curated small set of stuff to read which is one value proposition of the magazine is we're not endless we're a small set of things to read and that's actually an advantage but so the atlantic by having an app version that's their digital replica of their magazine. They have that. And then they have another thing that's, I have to believe, is an experiment. It doesn't cost as much money to feed. And uh, it breaks them out of that. And they can have separate revenue and advertising for it without changing that audited relationship. And um, so that's, I think, a specific American problem. I do not know if even in Canada, they probably maybe in Canada they do, because we have a lot of overlap with publication distribution. Um but that's been an issue. Like for years, I, I did not understand why people didn't break out of their print replica, and that's and that's it. That explains so much. And I don't know why I didn't know this until a few months ago. Um, but it's also it constrains innovation because you have to, you know all these publications have to have an app, and because if they're ad driven, they have to have one that's like the, the magazine in print or the newspaper, or whatever. It constrains their ability to try new and different things, and then at some point. It'll it'll change because they will need to do new and different things. The print revenue will decline enough. The uh, the, yeah, and the app version will not do well enough, and they will have to suddenly do quite different things to find a path forward. See, and, okay, the, the quite different things. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that quote. <laughs> and I know that's a 
like a jerky question, basically. But like, what? Like, I'm not looking for like a definitive answer because oh, yeah, everybody's yeah. sort of trying to figure this stuff out. But like, what what does that mean? That that's as clear as I can make that question. Oh, well, like, no, it's it's so they're like when the first iPad apps came out for publications, like it's, people were like, oh my gosh, look at what Wired's doing. And what Wired did is they essentially took something that was like a PDF. It was Adobe produced, and they put a couple interactive elements in it. And I found the navigation sort of horrible, and I didn't feel like it took any native advantage of the fact that you're on a computing device. It was a representation of a print thing in digital form, and they tried to do as much within that constraint. So the reason the magazine got attention when Marco released it was it wasn't the first, but it was maybe because it came from him and because of his connection to owning Instapaper, and maybe because people were dying to see something different. This idea of something that was completely broken from the constraints of the past. And he had, there was no print component to be beholden to. There was no revenue stream to be beholden to. People seized on it and they said, oh, this could be the future of publications in, uh, in mobile devices and browsers. You know, it was, it was seen as like it's an iPad app and of course it was more and it was a website and whatever. But it was, um, uh, it was, there are, I mean, Craig Maud, um, wrote this great essay called Subcompact Publishing. Oh, yeah, I, I read that. Yeah. yeah, and so, I mean, he spells it all out, and it's funny because Marco came out with it, then Craig wrote that, and it was like, oh, now, you know, I had some ideas about it, now I understand it, and and Craig has really influenced my thinking about this, too. And it's not that this is, so, it's not that this new format is um, the only one or the most successful path forward, but it get, it gets away, it, it tries to take advantage of the fact that you've got a multimedia device that's highly suitable for reading now because you have high uh, high DPI displays. So it's like paper. It's bright enough. You have battery life. You have all the things that um, make for a great reading experience, but you have things that are essentially a PDF in app form. So the magazine was, no, this is a... This is somewhere more like a web page. It's you know, it's HTML5 is what drives all the pages in the magazine. It's more like a web page, but with parameters set to make it the best reading experience that the designer of the app thinks he can make in this case. So everything was optimized around um, the reader and the subscriber, easy subscription. Um, uh, you can run it on multiple devices, uh, a finite amount of content, even though it was being delivered as a periodical that was partly for convenience instead of continuously publishing, which overwhelms people, little quanta of, you know, magazines. Every two weeks, something will come out and there'll be at least a few interesting things in there for you to read. Um, even like some of the swiping behavior, like everything about it wasn't designed to put other stuff in front of you than the thing you wanted to read. Everything was designed to get out of the way so that you could read and to deliver stuff to you in a way that you didn't have to manage or cope with. And I think all of that was very powerful. So the related part of that is there's no ads in the magazine. So it's 100% beholden to subscribers. And that's great and bad. It means there's no other party. You know, the, the, the consumer, the reader is not a product. The consumer is, uh, you know, we have a relationship. They're a patron. And I've pitched it that way. And I think it's true is that when you subscribe to a publication that has no advertising, you are the patron. Um, if yeah. there's no other money coming in, you're the person. If you don't subscribe, then that bit of money doesn't help defer the costs and doesn't continue it. So, uh, you know, over time, I, I've pitched it a little more like that. It's a for-profit venture, and I'm not walking out with my, my, you know, with my pockets comically bulging with coins. It's, <laughs> it's uh, you know, like I say, it's, it's an experiment, and I have different lines of revenue for my own personal <laughs> making a living. But it's... Um, but it's a very direct thing. Now, 
I'm not opposed to having advertising or sponsorship if it made sense and if I could have the right people where I wasn't bombard, I didn't have to structure it to bombard the reader. And I felt it was a value to them that, you know, on podcasting, I've got sponsors on my podcast and I, I like having them because I feel like, um, it's not just the money part, which makes it possible for me to devote time and hire an audio engineer and, and, um, you know, some expense if I need to travel or have some audio, like it actually underrates my ability to produce what I think is a, is a podcast every week that has a certain, you know, a certain kind of thing. So that's great. But the other part is I feel like having sponsors, um, most of them have an offer for the audience. So I feel like I've got an audience that may do web hosting. If these guys are going to give 25% off, that's a win for my audience because they're going to buy it anyway. I'm not convincing them to buy a hula hoop. I'm convincing – I'm giving them access to something they may already know or not know they need, but it's part of what they do for business. And and so if I could find the same thing for the magazine where there were sponsors that were um, in line with what I thought the readers did – so I'm not selling them crap, but I'm selling them – I'm giving them access to interesting things. It would be possible. And that changes a patronage relationship too, but I really do think of um, in this model. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question right. It's like no, no, no. a set of other things. That, yeah. <laughs> no, but yeah, that, that's sort of – okay. So I, just one more thing I want to touch on because yeah. you said the uh, – because it is still a peri- per- periodical. It's not a continuous, but, but uh, mm-hmm. like the stuff doesn't – yeah. But when you said it becomes overwhelming, I sort of agree with that. But I think that's a fairly – well, a fairly new thing. That's a really – a very internet thing, you know, that it sort of – it feels like now – if something shows up on your doorstep that's really thick and you have to you, you have to read it, right? That's sort of, I mean, that didn't exist before. Like that was the magazine. That was the whole point of it. You know, you you, you subscribe to a magazine and you got it to your door and then you'd read the whole thing. Well, maybe not the whole thing, but the parts you actually liked. And you know, that was that's how you got your information. And I don't know how to reconcile that with the you know the internet age where you're constantly bombarded with like articles. Let's set quality aside but like like when you said it overwhelms people like does mm-hmm. the bi-weekly thing sort of work or is there like even a better way of doing that stuff or maybe a continuous thing is better like how, how what are your thoughts on that I'm, I'm in the same boat about that question as you are is um so there's this thing called completism and i, I wrote something on my blog a year ago about it um so uh, you know so i write i've written for the economist for almost a decade and one of my editors there tom standage who uh He's written a bunch of books, and he's uh, he's the digital editor now. And uh, he wrote a book called um, "Writing on the Wall." It's like the, it's a two thousand year history of social media, and it's fascinating because he finds Facebook like things in Roman times. It's it's really a good read, like how letters were distributed and copied and commented on and whatever. So he's got this deep bench of how he thinks about contemporary digital stuff, and and. Um, and he – I'd heard this term before and, and he introduced me more deeply to it. And it, it, completism is the – it describes readers who feel that whatever they have access to, they have to read all of. And there are some people like that and some not. And so you probably know people who read Twitter and people who surf Twitter. And I have friends like my friend Lex Friedman who I always call out because I like to make fun of him about this even though it's perfectly <laughs> reasonable behavior. He has a limit on the number of people he can follow because he reads every tweet. Or he scans them, but he looks through it. He cannot skip over them. And, um, and I cannot do that. I follow, I don't know, 2,000 people, 1,000 people. And I will run back in the feed a little bit. I'll look. Sometimes there's somebody I know. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what's going on with uh, my friend Leah Reich. She publishes um, on Medium in her own collection. She publishes uh, a Year of Wednesdays. It's this essay project she has. And I'm like, oh, it's Wednesday morning. Uh, I don't see the link, so I will search on 
her thing and like, oh, there's the link. That's great. So I'll do that. It's not like I'll go, okay, I didn't get it, so the link is gone forever. But um, but I don't read Twitter. And I think this is actually a great um, parallel to how people consume publications. And it also is why people you know are disabled by the internet and overwhelmed yeah. by it. And why others are like, eh, it's fine. I go in and out or whatever or somewhere in between. So Twitter isn't curated. It's curated by yourself. And so some people have to self-curate it or they're – I mean there's one person, this really lovely person, who she responds to tweets from 12 to 24 hours ago. She reads it and she gets behind and I'll be like, what is that about? I'm like, oh, we are way past talking about that. So sometimes I respond to her, but other times I'm like, I am so – that was like a day ago. It, but So you're out of sync that way too and you feel compelled. And I, you know – I'm not an expert on obsessive compulsive behavior, but I believe having to read every tweet in you know, your Twitter stream feels obsessive compulsive. Because why? What benefit? People feel like they're going to miss something. So with the publication, the notion of completism is uh, this comes up with the Economist app, and this is what Tom was telling me about, and I, and I wrote about it a bit, and it comes up with the magazine very specifically too. Is the Economist publishes hundreds of blog posts a week? They are not in the app. They're not in the app because if they were in the app, it would drive the completist crazy. And The Economist has a lot of completist readers because it's the kind of thing that people made a point of reading. Like you get it. You read the whole thing. It's not that huge. It's big, but it's not that huge. Some people read The Economist cover to cover every week or it stacks up like The New Yorker. So that's an issue when you design an app. And I don't think – I think Marco hadn't anticipated it and I certainly did not understand it until into it is I have people who say – I really don't read that much. I subscribe to the app and five articles every two weeks is too much and I'm way behind. And I say, you don't have to read the old articles. They're like, yeah, but I paid for them. I feel I want to get caught up. And I'm like, you will never get caught up. We yeah. all die someday. <laughs> you will never – like I, I have the – I am a cast things aside. Not people, not friendships, not love, not any of that. Not family, but it's like I am the – this thing from 20 years ago I have not looked at in 20 years. I found it in a box in the basement. It is going to be donated or recycled or thrown away because it is of no – it is now a, a dead thing of the past. And some people don't live that way and I think it extends in different realms in their lives. And it's something you have to factor in as a publisher. I certainly did not understand from day one or you know day 180. It took me months to really get that that's part of what you have to think about. Yeah, because that that never occurred to me. Also, like, because I'm sort of the same way. I don't really have a problem with you know missing stuff on Twitter or you know just not reading the whole RSS feed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that I'm not one of those guys. But yeah, I mean th- that's certainly something to think about when it's a periodical. Because I mean, I guess the question, I, at least now, at least that's what it seems like to me is: what do you put into the app? If you have a like, even if you have a print publication, or if it's not even a print publication, but like, what actually goes into the app? Well, think about. That, I mean, think about the design. Like, Twitter is Twitter is all encompassing for some people, and they have to leave it entirely, or it may take over their life as a result. Or publications that push out stuff. I mean, the New York Times pushes yeah. out constant updates. Like, the continuous news cycle is bad for some readers, and maybe, maybe is it 40%? Is it 90%? I don't know, and I have not read research about it, and I would be curious for whom the cycle is actually bad. Yeah, because, yeah, well, the New York Times is like a real extreme, because that they, they just churn out stuff all the time. I mean, that's, I don't, like, I, I've never been, like, in their offices, but I, I just imagine there's like 30,000 people in there because that, there's no way <laughs> you can output that much, basically, at least to my eyes. But okay, so um, with the with the magazine, so let's go to a con- concrete example. Uh, when you said you have to like keep up with the churn of subscribers. Uh, yes. Like, 
How have you found? Uh, see, I don't want to get into numbers because I think that sort of derails the conversation. But like, um, like the attrition rate, like, have you been surprised by it, or is it, or, or it, over the long term, has it become like a natural thing where you just, you know, it's like peaks and valleys, and you just sort of you go with the flow, basically. Well, I'll be completely honest. It's been, it's actually been all downhill, but we started for such a high point that mm-hmm. um, that uh, we have, you know, we have we have an ebb and flow. So we have, you know, some number of people coming in. Each each month and more going out and we started with so much excitement a lot of people coming on because it was an experiment and um and so it's it's uh the ongoing issue is is finding people who haven't heard about us and getting them in or bringing back people who left and want to come back after being away and it's it's a very you know uh god i mean this is true in every realm is there's so many things crying for attention we are a tiny tiny voice in there and i think one of the faults with what happened with the magazine? One of the reasons why I say it's still an experiment. It's not like a, not like a thriving business that was. You know, be here in ten years is, um, and I don't know what'll happen. Is uh, that the focus was too general? And Marco was focused, and I don't blame Marco. And I took it over with the same attitude in mind. Is um, Marco was focused on. Uh, the magazine experience and the kind of stuff he wanted to read that he didn't feel was being written about everywhere. And then when I came on as editor around issue two, we, we started to broaden it into reporting right away because it's hard to get enough unique essays that you can't read the same kind of thing being discussed everywhere on the net and for free. So reporting allows you to get uh, more unique insight. And we sought out essays from people that had, you know, the more, I want to say offbeat, but things to talk about that weren't discussed all the time or, or interesting points of view or lovely methods of expression. And, um, but if we had started out, if we had said, we are the journal about, um, antique stuff, you know, type, antique tech, we're the, we're the retro tech journal of curiosity. And, uh, and we're going to cover typewriters and fountain pens and, um, whatever. I actually think at some level, like that's, that's not, you know, letterpress and whatever. And we've done some of that. I don't think that's sustainable as a biweekly publication. However, it would have given us an easy way to reach a potential audience. We would have had conference or events to go to and groups to join and things to sponsor and places to advertise and keywords. Anytime someone searches for, you know, a Corona Royal on Google, we could say, you like Corona Royals. You know what? There's a magazine for you. We talk about that and more because we're a general magazine. It is, I'm going to say, and you know, anybody listening who's got a marketing background is going to say I'm, I'm way too naive or inexperienced. Uh, although I've had, I've worked in marketing at different points, but, um, internet only really, um, the, the problem is it's almost impossible to find a place to what we can afford to advertise or sponsor or market to that reaches a general audience that might be interested because our you know we're essentially competing against wired we don't write about the same exact set of things we don't have you know all the departments or the heft or whatever and and part of our appeal is that we don't is that we are smaller but we are looking for a sort of geeky audience that's interested in general things and wired focuses more specifically on contemporary technology and privacy and so forth we focus more generally on storytelling that involves you know old tech new tech some aspect of geekery so we have a different focus but our audience has a very strong overlap we cannot afford to market 
to Wired's audience. Wired's part of a giant multinational company. Yeah, Condé Nast. Right? Yeah, yeah. Every, and they have you know reciprocal advertising in other publications. They have a website that gets that publishes blog entries and new articles. They have you know they spend conventional marketing. I get flyers. They have you know in in America, The Economist. There are like giant banners everywhere for The Economist, for instance, and we feel like. Part, you know, I write for the technology quarterly section, and some of what we do has a very neat overlap with what the Economist sells in that sec- that section. So, our, I think one of our fundamental problems, and the reason that subscriptions have been so difficult, is not that like you know I'm not saying we always fire in all cylinders, and that we produce a perfect publication every issue that everyone should read every article in and and they're all perfect it's like no we're you know we're a small group and we try to do as best we can i think we publish really interesting stuff we have great writers and we work really hard at it so i'm not trying to say you know we're at the um you know 50 million dollar publication level we're not we're small and so forth but i think we do a very consistent and good job uh on the editorial side and what we offer and offering interesting new things to read about that said, that doesn't help on the marketing side because um, even with you know 500 million people who might be subscribers, reaching them, it, it just costs us 100 times as much as if we'd had a focus. I think, it, like I say, I don't know what the focus would be, but if we had figured out a, a niche that had hmm. um, an area that could be well-defined for online advertising or for podcasts, let's say we had decided we we're a magazine for programmers, anything programmers are interested in. I know it's, again, a bizarre idea. Let's say anything programmers are interested in. We're going to talk a little bit about coding, but we're going to talk about stuff that's interesting to to programmers without being about programmers. And Marco's initial thrust was that, like, stuff interesting to geeks without necessarily always being about technology. So if we'd done that, I know how to reach programmers. There's podcasts I can advertise, there's keywords, there's websites, like, and it's it's mostly affordable because the audiences are small and... um, we could pay small amounts and see and get returns. So that's our fundamental issue is we're so general, it's very hard to afford the marketing to reach the audience that we think could become subscribers. Yeah, I see. That's not a problem that exists over here. That's what I keep <laughs> Like every American or like uh, British person I talk to, like in my podcast, sort of says that, oh, you know, there's the, the, like, like what you said, you basically have to sort of find a niche or a focus, right? Mm-hmm. But you see, that only works when you have 300 million people talking the same no, language. No, I know. That's the thing. Is right. You haven't, I mean, I was talking yeah. to a group that's trying to launch a regional publication in print and online at the same time in a, in a, a very focused, uh, like, city area. And I'm like, I wasn't saying you're guaranteed success, but there's nothing like it there. And they have a sufficient audience and they can reach all those people almost directly. Like they have the means through community groups and so forth. Their marketing, it's not that it's easy, but they have a very defined audience they can see around them. They can walk the streets and see all their potential readers. And I have a mar- large audience and I'm such a tiny, tiny fish. That's really the problem. Yeah, that's, ah, uh, man. I, 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 wish it, like, I wish we could have those problems over here. But like, oh, that, I know, but... Yeah. <laughs> No, but seriously, that all falls away when you have 2 million people, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's the whole population. Then when you factor out the people that aren't online, that, I think that drops to about a million and a half or maybe a million 400,000. Mm-hmm. Now, take out all of the like, really young people. Like, e- like even if we want to general, do a general publication, that's pretty much all you can do. Right. Like it, it has to have more than like you, there's no niches here. I talked to this with Mike Hurley. You know, He does like a podcast about pens. 
I love him. Yeah, which, yeah. Yeah, which is insane. Like he just said, yeah, you have to find your niche. And I'm like, dude, the niche here is 17 people. I just, I can't. <laughs> like, that, Hence, we're talking in English right now. I see. It's an interesting, <laughs> uh, interesting notion. But, but no, but I, but the, yeah, the, so, but you, ha- that means you have to find stuff of much more general interest, right? That that everything has to appeal to a much larger audience, or you won't get a big enough audience, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. and then, and then. As soon as you start doing that, you're I'm in the same boat as you are. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm competing against you know like people that actually have like a marketing department and all of that stuff. Right, and it just gets weird. It's, yeah, it's uh, I, that's why I sort of love hearing you guys talk about stuff like this, and I just like slowly get angry when you do. It. <laughs> <laughs> Like, well, I, that's why I say the, the, the contrary thing is, well, I mean, this is a funny thing. When you have a, an audience that's potentially enormous and you can't reach it, it's not any better than having a, a, a tiny audience that isn't that doesn't sustain you because you're in the same boat. It's just that I feel like, I mean, you know, there actually are not literally enough people to do what you might want to do in a specific area. Um, I know there are enough people and I can't reach them. So I, I have a different uh, different kind of frustration. But it's, <laughs> yeah. not, it's not necessarily, but it's, but it's positionally, it's like maybe I can crack the knot and i realize in your case cracking the knot is not possible because you don't have a big enough audience in my case maybe i can figure it out and figure out how to reach that that larger one yeah but the like the the thing that doesn't work over here if if you go by topic right if you find like a niche topic you can't really do that but in terms of like the format you present your stuff in like i do podcasts here now it's a whole network we have like six shows now Mm -hmm. and like i think that that was sort of a new thing here so i mean we are building a like a fairly large-sized audience now but you know i i do a podcast about something like the incomparable with a stand-up comic friend of mine but he's all he kind of has some mainstream success and i do another one with a like a professional basketball player who's actually well known here like properly well known you know like and you sort of there are workarounds but as far as the the topic of the thing is you know you, mm-hmm. then yeah you just you, i can't do a show about pens i mean i just <laughs> like or maybe antique tech like there would be literally literally seven people here that would <laughs> listen to that like, I, well wait i mean that's was well, interesting less is why you're and again spanning to english is a great uh is a great thing as a result but yeah it's but so how do you plan I mean, then you, then a lot of what you have to do has to be for love, right? Is you can't count on revenue. You could have really loyal people listening or reading, but you nope. can't count that it'll be supportable. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, we do a, a stuff that's a little bit broader, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then, and we do have like a PayPal uh, subscription thing up. And I've been like, I've been blown away by like the support we've gotten. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I wish more people would, but you know, I just because you see, and that's that's another thing over here. Like, like not a hell of a lot of people have a credit card. Mm-hmm. Where you know we, really? we weren't yeah no seriously that's a, I, that, that. I keep getting emails like I'd like to like give you money basically but I don't have a credit card so I can't use PayPal or you know send it like via PayPal because I just figured PayPal is the easiest way because I buy like I use I use all of the proceeds I get from people for like equipment and you know the servers and but, stuff but like that is it a is it a, a what is this, is it a bank infrastructure are there so many banks you're close enough to a bank that people just transfer money among accounts. Yeah, basically, yeah, and we oh, have like online, yeah, and that's the thing you talked with. Uh, I think you talked with Grubel about in the the last time you were on the talk show, like was the it whole, ship and pin and so forth, and all the bank fees. And yeah, yeah, and, but over here, like if you belong to the same bank, there's not really a transfer fee, and you just do it through your browser. You mm-hmm. know, if you want to like send money to another person, 
there's no like I, I've never seen a check like I'm 30 years old and I've never seen one. Oh, that's hilarious that, wait a minute so oh no that's so different because see the fees are so high the banks I mean you were listening to this right the banks in America and in some other countries make so much of their money like, if you want to do a wire transfer here uh, you know transfer between two banks it can cost 15 to 25 dollars and there's some new services it's nuts there's some new services so my credit union has this thing that's perfect that it's called pay other people money or pop money and it's a licensed service some group that they <laughs> partner with. I know it's funny yeah. so it's licensed for something and, and so I've seen this elsewhere but so my credit union on my personal account but not my business account they haven't expanded it yet I can go there and like I need to send uh, $200 to my dad I go there and I pop in if he gives me his bank information like there's a routing number and it's different every country but there's a routing number which identifies the bank and there's an account number yeah. which everybody has right so I punch that in and they send him a text or something to verify it and they plop the money in his account and they don't charge me anything and I think because it's not it is a form of wire transfer I don't know what they do but it's free and I think because it, it's cheaper for them to process in a check it's worth it to them to offer this as a free service but that's the most that, that's the only thing I've ever seen in America besides PayPal or Dwalla or some of these online paying systems that facilitate easy, free movement of money. And that's why Bitcoin is so interesting. But gosh, if you can move money around in Slovenia and you don't have to yeah, um, I mean, even if it's fees, then what's the motivation, right? Yeah, but no, yeah, but seriously, that, that's that that's the thing. Everybody just has a debit card here. I mean, I I have a credit card solely for buying plane tickets and like eBay. That, mm-hmm. like, that's the, <laughs> no, but see, that's the, that's the truth. I mean, that's the only the only reason I have one. Like you know, and I, I guess uh, more people have them now just because of iOS and Android, and because you can buy apps, and sort of the only way to do that. Because oh yeah, uh, you know, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm hoping that's gonna sort of spur uh, like I guess credit card usage over mm-hmm. here you know I mean but over here to get a credit card you have to like they look at your balance you know they just don't give it to anybody like like, like over there because <laughs> the impression I get in America you just have to show up and they'll give you like a thousand dollars credit mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm wrong but that, that's what it seems like over here but you know yeah and that, that's an actual problem I mean I, I, I seriously I get like a couple of emails uh, like every couple of months I get like a couple of emails that just say like I want to give you money I, I, I can't because I don't have a credit card and it's an actual problem mm-hmm. and i don't know what to do i just can't give them my bank account and just say well i'll just send it to my bank that's weird you know <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah and that you see and that those are the problems we sort of have to deal with and yeah that that's that's why i that's why i like talking to you guys because you just have like it's a different I guess you gloss over some of this stuff, but it's interesting what comes out the other end, you know, when you can no, actually well, think true. about niches and stuff. Yeah, yeah. well, it's especially, I mean, everybody, you know, there's, I can't, you know, Amazon and uh, Apple have, I don't know, I think, I don't know what the numbers are now, but they probably each have, well, Apple must have hundreds of millions of credit card numbers and Amazon must be well over a hundred million. It was 70 million at some point or accounts that people had cards attached to. And uh, so it's a different thing. Like, you know, Kickstarter, it won't work in a country in which people couldn't either link in direct withdrawal from their bank or uh, be able to charge with a credit card or a debit yeah. card or something. And so Kickstarter works here because everybody's like, oh, I'll put my credit card online and whatever. And in a country like yours, if people don't have them, I mean, you could have a Kickstarter there, but they'd have to 
link in with banks and be sure that people could put all their bank information in and it's a different kind of thing. Yeah, and it's a pain and the friction mm-hmm. so much higher to just, you mm-hmm. know, to just get money from people is tougher here online, I mean. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it, it's just tougher. That's And like we have like a bunch of, you know, like on, online retailers and stuff. And you, you basically just get the numbers you have to fill into the, you know, uh, the, the bank's web thing, right, in the browser and that's how you pay it. Mm-hmm. That that's how. Like, wow. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, I I, I don't want to like give the impression that nobody has a credit card, but it's it's a credit card is not something just like it's not the basic thing you get from the bank over here. That's my point. Like it's you have to seek it out, right? Like really seek it out. The the only thing you get is a debit card, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. And the, is and, a debit card? Well, you can't use it. Can you use the debit card as a credit card number? And in America, all no. the debit cards are essentially credit cards too. Well, yeah, with, with, with PayPal you can't. In Slovenia, they just accept credit cards. So there's your See, point for destruction. Is this a, so? There must be. Is there a regulator who is preventing this from happening? Are there state interests that are being protected, like a, I, I, a PTT? I n- like I have no idea why That's things are. Yeah, but the thing is, like when I listen to you and Gruber talk about, and you just said like a bank, tra- like a bank to bank transfer. If it's not the same bank, it's like fifteen or twenty bucks. Yeah. That's insane. I mean, here there is a fee, but I, I know I'm gonna like I'm gonna just pull a number out of my head, but it's it's nowhere near a euro. Like mm-hmm. it's 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 not, like you you get a fee if you pay like the electricity bill with my bank. I think it's like thirty six cents or something. Like and, if you do but, it online. And we pay – I mean that's the thing is we pay a fee on the credit card size. We're paying 2 to 3% per transaction. It's just hidden in the transaction, right? So we, we yeah. are paying. If I, if I have a $100 credit card transaction, 3 bucks of that plus – and maybe even more if you carry all the overhead. It, I'm paying 3 bucks. I just don't see it. It's a, it's an, you know, it's an included charge in the price of how the price of goods are calculated. And in your case, it's an explicit thing. You're, you're paying ostensibly less because it's inter, interbank, um, instead of, uh, instead of going through a network and, and so forth. It's very, it's a very interesting. I had no idea. I mean, not that I think, didn't think Slovenia has a modern banking infrastructure, but that I, it seems like because of the internet, I have made the bad assumption that, you know, any place in Europe at least was going to have, this, a similar infrastructure because of like you know you try when you go to um, <clears throat> when you go to Sardinia or something what do you do do you have to get a credit card when no, you go you can, you can you with, no you can withdraw money from a like a, a, a an ATM there with your debit card oh so it That's does it. Okay. and they do yeah and they do uh-huh. the, the yeah but you see it's not the same as a credit it's kind but of just doesn't, no, no but you have to go to an ATM you go to a bank machine you can't so, but if you want to buy something from a merchant you can't hand over the card you have to well, go to a bank machine Maya, yeah funds. well that's gotten better with the I think like, Mastercard has the debit card version is uh, Maestro I think it's called so mm-hmm. any place that has that you can actually pay with the card yeah there, but it's it's treated like a debit transaction over their network though probably if it doesn't yeah, work probably yeah that is I, very I interesting know. Well, because, yeah. I mean, that's the whole, well, isn't that the whole, uh, is, is Slovenia part of, it's not part of the EU, is it? Yes, it is, yes. it is. Okay, right, so, you, and are you using Euro in Slovenia? I don't know Yes, this. yes. So, that's bizarre. So, you're part of a banking system <laughs> in which everybody else in the Euro system just about is going to have credit cards and whatever, and you guys are, are bereft. That's funny. Yeah, but no, I mean, you can get a credit card. It's not like, you know, just not, not a lot of people do because there's no, I, I don't know what the incentive is to get one, except for online stuff. It would cost more to do everything. That's the so the banks are giving you yeah. See, the banks are giving you an incentive to not get a credit card. But that's weird because most places people well, we have this issue. Part of it is when you're doing bank transfers, you have to have the money. In America, we're horribly indebted, right? We have, (laughs) and that's because of credit cards. The average household has I don't know what it is after the economic slowdown, but the average household 
has is it fifteen thousand dollars? Some there's some very large number, and people then turn to home equity because home equity. Well, the home equity loans were cheaper. So your home would have appreciated in value during the run-up in the 2000s, and you'd take $100,000 out and feel like this was free money. Then the crash happens, and your house is suddenly worth below your total loan value, and you're paying money on it, and you can't sell your house. You can't refinance your house. Uh, but that shifted money from credit card debt into essentially increasing your home debt or what you borrowed against your home. Um, and that, so, so, But I think it's shifted back because home value went down. So people have this massive, you know, we have credit cards partly for convenience and largely to maintain high interest debt. And um, I'm surprised that Slovenian yeah. banks aren't trying to, uh, maybe you actually have a good regulator. Oh, no, no, you, no. Well, I was going to say, but, but, the, the, but usually <laughs> most places like, you know, you can pay 20% interest on a credit card in America. Yeah, that's just it's, I don't, it should be illegal yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. But I mean, so I'm surprised that in a country in which they don't I mean, it's just, there's so much money to be made. I'm surprised that no one's figured out how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm going to cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, and that's an actual like that's that's a, like an actual problem. I don't know how to, how that's else to explain it. Yeah, cuz people just don't have them. I mean, the debit cards here you have, they have the chip and the pin and you know, you can withdraw money and pay with it like mm-hmm. most places that has a master but it, that is not a credit card. Right. That is linked to a, a, a bank account where like money is deposited. Mm-hmm. It's not like a credit card where you just like it's it's the number on there is imaginary. <laughs> you know, the bank <laughs> just gives you a number basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's insane. Yeah, it's insane, and that's that's why. Yeah, that's why. Like every time I get a new PayPal notification that the listener sort of uh, supported the podcast we do, I just like I like I do a little dance basically. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's oh that's God. always a, that, that makes my week usually. So, huh. uh, yeah. Uh, so okay, now like we're talking about me now, and this is not supposed to. Yeah, that's well, I'm fascinated. <laughs> this is part of my high. I'm a reporter. I ask all these questions. Yeah, but you see, that's why when, when I listen to uh, uh, the like the English podcasts, you know, I just yeah, I just sometimes I'm just like shaking my head there, <laughs> like the problems. <laughs> like you guys really do have like first world problems. Basically. Yeah, that's no, the, I, when I hear that, uh, I'm like, oh, I didn't realize we had it that good. Good gravy. Yeah, no, but but honestly, I don't I don't really see that there's a downside with people not having credit cards because it generally means maybe you spend pretty much the the amount you have. I get mm-hmm. the bank does give you like a, a, a you can you can uh, overthrow your balance yeah. even on a debit card. Like they do give you that, but they sort of are kind of careful. Mm-hmm. But the banking situation here is uh, I'm, I'm, I'm effed up. That that's how I'm gonna. Uh, say it because <laughs> we have like this big national bank that gave out this like ludicrous loans to people uh, oh, d- yeah. uh, during the Ramba to 2008 and now like everything basically fell apart and that's why our economy is just like barely al- it's not even alive like that's yeah it's pretty grim here uh, economy wise like mm-hmm. yeah oh that's too bad oh, I'm sorry to hear that that's fine yeah. but, but, but that's odd that's what's odd is that You'd think credit cards would be a huge project that was product that was pushed, but everyone's leery because uh, um, it extends more credit, which makes things worse if there's not the credit. You know, if the people default. Because yeah. we have that, we have huge default rates on mortgages and everything here too. So, huh? Yeah, it's you see that's what happens when you have two million people. Things get weird because mm-hmm. yeah, the the usual rules sort of. At least that's how I see it. I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm speaking outside my comfort zone now. But yeah, huh. it's, it's it gets. We get like we don't get all of the benefits, I guess, of the you know the the the. I'm gonna say the Western world, 
but even like we don't get a lot of the crap as well you know <laughs> we sort of mm-hmm. yeah it, it works both ways i think and uh yeah it's worked out pretty well until about uh, four years ago five years ago that really went like just uh yeah i'm not gonna swear again <laughs> yeah, <it's> just, <laughs> uh, yeah yeah Ah, uh, oh, let's just forget our economy. Okay, I, I do have a couple of more questions. Okay, that's great, though. Ah, it's okay. I, I can just see you're gonna do research now, right? I mean, yeah, you're gonna, this is very yeah. interesting. <laughs> okay, uh, so uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is uh, 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 Jeopardy. Oh which is, yeah, yeah, which is a thing. I don't know how many people that are gonna listen to this here. I, I mean, I, I'm guessing they do know what Jeopardy is, but I, I, I'm, I was trying to find like an old link if we had a licensed version of that game show here, and I don't think so. I, I think it never sort of no no TV station bought uh, the license and made like our own version. Yeah, because it's but, a weird thing. No one would ever want to watch Jeopardy outside of a country in which it was made because the questions wouldn't make any sense anywhere else. I think it was shown in it may still be shown in Canada. I think it was shown in Australia for a little bit. Also, like a number of years ago, for a few seasons, it was syndicated there. Um, but yeah, it's a very particular thing. It's like uh, the weakest link. It's like the questions in weakest link on the UK would make no sense in the US. Yeah, but you see, we did have the weakest link. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, we, yeah, that yeah, makes yeah sense. and we had Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And we mm-hmm. also had that. I guess of the big franchises. But yeah, Jeopardy, I guess, never came. So, so I'm just going to recap here and just tell me if I'm wrong at <laughs> any point here. So, uh, the show. Uh, you basically answer questions and you have money and you basically bet that money. And if you get the questions, you make more money. That's pretty much the gist, right? I mean, sort of. Yeah, you answer. Yeah, you um, it, the the game mechanics are pretty straightforward. Is there's a board full of questions or well, they're called clues. They have dollar amounts and there are some wild cards where you can uh, if you get the wild card, you can bet up to the top amount that's currently on the board or uh up to the entire amount in your kind of bank account that you currently are maintaining during the game. And then there's a final round. So there's two rounds of that. Um, and the, the first round is one set of dollar values. The second round is twice as much. And then there's a final round with this sort of a, a sudden death question with 30 seconds that everyone gets to answer and can bet up to the total amount that they have at that point in the game. And that's actual money, right? I mean, that you, you do get yeah. the money you win, right? They have tournaments for – they have college, armed forces, kids – teens and champion tournaments which are kind of their special events during which uh, people are guaranteed fees at different levels and the money is sort of fake but during the regular season which is I think about two thirds of the year uh, the regular season it's actual money and I know that's funny when you reach the end of the game one thing that wasn't for a long time promoted at the game is uh, only the winner of the game uh, receives the money on the board that they won and then there's a second place prize of $2,000 and a third place prize of $1,000 um, and p- there can be ties also you can have two or three winners at the end if they have the exact dollar amount but so the second and third place people don't get the, don't lose everything and they don't get the money that's on the board for them. They get ah, okay. these fees, um, which so, is great. So people walk away with something. You have to pay your own airfare and hotel. And so even if you come in third place, you still get $1,000, which would cover you know all of that or more for, for most of the country to get to Los Angeles. Okay, so and you're like you're a two time champion. Which what does that mean exactly? Well, I, went, I went down. So they tape five programs a day, typically back to back. So they do. We'll do like ten shows over two days, and with some small gaps in between. So you get there, and I I played. I was there on a Tuesday and a Wednesday, and on Tuesday I watched three games. Then my name, my name was called. I went up on stage and I played. 
and won one game. Then the next went off and slept, came back, and then played one more game and lost. And on TV, that was a Thursday, Friday, and Monday, about two months later. The way it <laughs> okay, so yeah, it's all pre-taped and stuff, like yeah. way in advance, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, they okay. have Oh, yeah, because yeah. I I I sort of know the I've seen you know I've I've seen the SNL like sketches and stuff, but I've never actually seen like a, a an hour. It's an hour show, a half an hour. I don't I don't, I don't know why. I don't know. It's thirty. It's a thirty minute show. They usually do it back to back with Wheel of Fortune, which I find. Um, Horrible. <laughs> oh, we used to have Wheel of Fortune. You see, that's another one we used to have, yeah. Oh, that's easier, right? Because then you can change, say, you have a licensed version, you have different words, but it's, it's straight, more straightforward. Jeopardy is an intensive program. It makes, it used to have, uh, I think, 25 million regular viewers, and now it's down to eight or nine. But it puts out, I mean, they make a lot of money off that show in syndication, and it's intensive. They have people writing year round, you know. Thousands and thousands of questions and stuff gets thrown out, and some of it's timely, so it has to be up to date. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you see all these writers sitting out front when you're sitting there and you're on the on the show, um, and that's just a fraction of the people working on it. So it's a very, I mean, it's a very intense show to write. It's a very specific format to get questions that fit in the squares that can be answered that most people at home will know, and that most of the contestants will know, but won't seem too easy at the same time. It's a very it's particular been- thing. Yeah, and it's been running for a while now. I mean, this is like a, it's decades now. Right? Third, yeah, I mean, th- well, it, yeah, it was run. It's had three or four versions. It was even a rock and roll Jeopardy at one point. <laughs> I know. Okay. It's crazy, but it ran, I think it was originally in the 60s. There was a, a great host, Art Fleming. I think, no, no, he, yeah, Art Fleming, I think, was the original host, which as a, a kid in America, I watched him. Then it was off the air for a bit, came back in, and I think it had another version and this rock and roll version. And then um, it's been running from 1984 to the present with Alex Trebek as the host. There 30 years and he's in his seventies. Um, and he's been the host, you know, in like thousands and thousands of programs. They've had thousands of people come through. It's, it's a weird cultural phenomenon. And so very few people I know still watch it because it's only on network television. You cannot get it except on broadcast TV. Hmm. You can't watch it streamed online. You can't buy episodes. You can't get it on DVD. It's a, a very particular phenomenon here where you've syndicated television programs where, uh, essentially, 100% of the revenue comes from TV stations paying the program syndicator to run it, and then the TV stations run advertising against the program, and they keep the advertising proceeds. And they may split even some of the advertising with the show as well. Um, and so it's it, so it, there's no motivation for them to make it accessible. They're high enough in demand that they only appear in this format. Oh, okay. I did not know that. It's a syndicated show. It yeah, sounds really out of. I mean, yeah, it's like a, it's a game show. That that's even more bizarre, I think, because you can get away with you know what, what was that show, Renegade and stuff like the crappy mm-hmm. action shows that were syndicated, you know, or Walker Texas Ranger. I yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. And, but, <laughs> yeah. and those, but those would eventually go into reruns. You'd see them again. But this is a sequential show. Every episode's different. Like, why would you rerun Jeopardy? They are now showing some classic episodes that are particularly interesting on uh, a thing called uh, Crackle. It's an online um oh that's sony's a, sony's thing right Crackles. yeah this and, and yeah. Uh, that sounds right and it's a uh, sony uh sony pictures television or sony television i forget is the producer of jeopardy or the owner of jeopardy ah, um, okay. but so crackle you can go and see some they're doing this de- battle of the decades is aired now with people from each of the decades of jeopardy's um run are coming back for this sort of super tournament and uh they're airing the old episodes you can actually stream those or watch those on maybe on a cable channel as well, um, so you can see what these performers are like. But, yeah, it's one of these weird things. And I asked people when I was on the show, I was asking some of the staff, who the, I only deal with, they, they keep a separation, so I'm only talking to the people who deal with the 
contestants, but um, you know they're part of the show. And uh, so, when is this going to be streamed? Like, when are you going to make this available? And it's like the model still works. Like, there's enough TV viewers and enough money that it doesn't make sense to break it. And I, although Jeopardy, I think if Jeopardy were streamed, I think it would have a vast uh, watching population, but they don't, they can't monetize that. They don't want to steal viewers from local television stations because that's where the money comes from. If they, if they uh. stream, the local TV stations would cancel the show and then how would they replace that revenue? So this is a captive market and very intentionally so. Oh, this is like coming full circle with the magazines. I know. <laughs> scarcity is an amazing thing. Attention and scarcity are the two contending factors in all media. Is, is yeah. People have a finite amount of attention. And if you make something they really want scarce, then you can charge more money for it. And um, if you make something abundant, then you may get more people. But then you go from uh, – this is always the thing in America we talk about uh, – turning dollars into pennies when you go from print revenue for a publication into online is your eyeballs are worth less because the medium attracts uh, less intense attention and it's measured more precisely. And so the results tend to be more brutal. Um, so if you're getting a dollar, you know, in one scenario, you're going to get a penny online. And uh, I think the same is true for TV syndication is they know that people want to watch Jeopardy. They have a dedicated audience. And if they only make it available in one form, they have to push people to broadcast TV, which means people see the ads and the advertisers are happy. Yeah. Of course, we skip oh, man. I watch I, it with my boys and we skip. We fast forward. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, at TiVo and stuff, yeah. But, like, I just – I wish I could forward like 15 years into the future and just see how all this shakes out. Because the mm-hmm. dollars and pennies thing, that has to like work itself out somehow. I just have no idea how. Like that's the – yeah, okay, we're going to go into that again, and we're not. We're going to – yeah, I have, a, I have one more thing I wanted oh, to yeah. – well, it's, it's more like more, maybe even more of a compliment than a question, but uh, uh, The New Disruptors yes. uh, is, is a show you do, which I'm a uh, huge fan of. Oh, thank and you very much. Like, yeah, basically the, the, the main reason I wanted to have you on, and it's – the second to last thing I want to talk to you about. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going to say, just just plug the show for the people that are listening to this so they'll know what it's about. And I, I do urge everybody to, to, to give it a listen. But just just plug. This is a, like, a, 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 like don't, don't be ashamed to just purely plug <laughs> the podcast. Excellent. Well, I mean, I would be like, <laughs> well it, it's, you know, what the show is about is, is um, you know, I've, it's funny. I launched the show called The New Disruptors. And then people shortly after that were starting to say, oh, I hate the word disruption. It's overused. I'm like, Gosh darn it! I timed this just wrong. But you know, I didn't want to be pretentious. But I wanted to say, here's a he, these are people who are disrupting um, every kind of field of creative endeavor and creative production. And and I thought new disruptors was sort of a good broad thing, so I could sweep other people under it. It's like it's so it's anyone who creates something. It's artists, musicians, product designers, programmers, uh, bookmakers. Um, printers, you know, anybody who's doing anything interesting in the realm of making something new that people want to consume in some form or enjoy or even from the community standpoint participate in. And it's, and, and, all, and so I'm focusing on the fields in which all of those things had gatekeepers before and now you can reach people directly or you use um, what I like to call a facilitator. I don't know if that's the right term, but these are – they're like thin intermediaries. They're people who – 
um, so here's a great example. I'm talking to the filmmakers. An upcoming episode is uh, the guys who made a movie about um, comic strip and comic strip artists called Stripped that's coming out oh, uh, April 1st. Oh, uh, the, uh, uh, the Bill Watterson did the art for it, right? Exactly. Yes. Oh, it's yes. wonderful. Okay. Right? So this film is – I've seen a, a press screener of it. It's a wonderful film. It's coming out April 1st and they'll be on the program. Uh, we're airing their episode a few days before. And so they chose – so they're distributing through iTunes, which is a kind of – uh, which iTunes is weird. It's not a gatekeeper in the way the old gatekeepers were, but they take a big chunk of money and they are very picky. So they are a bit of a gatekeeper, but they're not exclusive. And that was the old thing. Like a lot of gatekeepers were not just uh, picky, took a big, controlled you creatively, maybe owned you. Um, and took a big chunk of your revenue, uh, and they controlled scarcity, right? So you can't get a movie into the theaters unless you go through all these hoops, and there's no other way to see a movie. And this was true with books. You have to get into the bookstores. You have to get in the magazine stand. You have to get into the record store. All of these things involved a lot of people and all these gatekeepers that controlled scarcity to increase value. So the show is about the idea that not only can you reach people directly, like Jonathan Colton can sell music from his site, but what facilitates him selling that as well is not only did he build an audience, and there's all the interesting things about him, is that something like PayPal or Stripe or, um, or, you know, or even credit card companies allowing you to take credit card charges online and only charge you 3%. Like all of these things led to Jonathan Colton being able to make a living from his career and, uh, and Kickstarter being able to facilitate the collection of money in these rewards based systems. So, the, so these stripped filmmakers, um, they're going to use, uh, so the launch on iTunes to get a bigger boost, right? But then they're going to go to, I forget if it's the second or third day, they'll be on VHX, X like X-ray. And mm-hmm. um, VHX.com is a DRM-free distribution platform with streaming and downloads. And you can get an account, but then you can download a link and you download the film. And there's none of this like, you can only do it in certain places, at times this country, the time the moon has to be in alignment. It's like, <laughs> no, it's totally open. And VHX takes, I forget what it is, it's a very small percentage of each sale. And so VHX is as much a facilitator of um, stripped being a, a thing to dis, to be distributed as Kickstarter was to allow Strip to raise the money as um, Final Cut Pro is as a way for the, or whatever they maybe use a different tool. Final Cut Pro is a way to make a film as um, you know all these as, as Twitter is a way for them to find people. Like all of these things conspire, so all the tools are now available, and many of them are very cheap or free, or they want a sliver of a percentage. Where before none of the tools were available, or they were very expensive, and everyone wanted you know ten percent, twenty percent, fifty percent, and to tell you what to do. So the whole show is about what happens when you can. Uh, express your creativity to the full extent that you want to without someone telling you you don't meet what we want to do. With, and, and, we, and rather rather they want to fill the pipe. So I talk about this a lot about um, the new intermediaries, these thin, thin intermediaries, they want to keep their pipe as full as possible. VHX, their business model would just, does better if they have a billion films available than if they have a million yeah. And it doesn't cost them more. There's storage costs and whatever, but but it doesn't. It Kickstarter, it, it Kickstarter, it maybe at some extent, if they had a million projects, it'd be worse than a hundred thousand. But they don't put an upper bound on it. The, the ability for people to put time and effort into making a campaign is the upper bound on Kickstarter. Um, who else was I talking to recently? It was that thing about, uh, um, you know, this is what drives telecommunications networks: the dumb pipe versus the smart pipe. A dumb pipe is, you know, data goes over the pipe, and the interests of the 
operator is to keep the pipe as full as possible because that's how they make their money is a full pipe. The smart pipe is you control the ends and you make everything as scarce as possible so you can force people to buy your stuff at the ends. And this is and so the telecom metaphor works even in this whole area of like art and commerce. And so every week I've got somebody different on um, and I try not to focus on any particular area of creativity and I do try to get these intermediaries on um, you know so I've had um, uh, a Kickstarter CEO was on and we talked mm-hmm. about that but you know I've also had Jonathan Colton or I had um, well, who recently D- Dylan McConus who's a cartoonist in uh, Portland is on an upcoming episode and she's done all kinds of interesting stuff through Kickstarter and running her own career and so and it doesn't always have to be a crowdfunding thing it's how does someone take control of their career and where do the technological tools aid them in doing it as opposed to hinder them or become a, a preventative from them doing it. Okay. That's well, yeah. Okay. That, I, yeah. That, I'm just going to Yeah. That's the show. No, but seriously, I'm, 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 I'm a huge fan. So I just want people Thank to know about the show much. basically. Yeah. Okay. So I do, I do this thing with every guest where I ask about that hardware and software. That's, that's a, uh, so I'm just going to ask oh, yeah. you, you know, uh, yeah, your computer and your phone and your tablet. Just, oh, that's uh, funny. Well, I'm, I'm an all Mac guy, not an all Apple guy, not by, um, uh, being ornery about it. I'm not a fanboy. I just, the stuff works for me and I've used windows and I have Linux. I mean, I've, I do have a bunch of virtual Linux servers running where all my servers uh, deal with, but I've got a, a Mac mini. I had a, um, a Mac. Uh, oh gosh. What was it? I don't even know what it was. I had a, one of the cheese grater models. It was a Mac pro 2007 model and it would not take lion. It refused to update to lion <laughs> and it drove me. Nuts. I have these weird crashes and the hard drive failed in the middle of it. And finally I'm like, this is 2012. So it's a five-year-old machine. And finally I'm like, I do not have the time to do this. So I, I go, you know, I'm like, there's an Apple store nearby. I'm like, I just need to buy a mini to replace it. I can't get a, I don't want to get a new Mac pro. They're too expensive. And I realize I look up the specs of the mini. I look at all the benchmarks and everything. And I realized the Mac mini that I bought for maybe $1,300 is more powerful than this 56 pound Mac pro that's five years old. I'm like, fine. And it also could take more memory and came with a bigger, and I'm like, and it, you know, it's two pounds and it's one sixteenth the volume. So, and what's the irony of course, is a couple months later, Apple released a, I think I had the very last Mac Pro, or the very earliest one you could run Lion on, and there were clearly incompatibilities. And two months later, they ran, uh, they released an update. Some dot release didn't say anything about it. Suddenly, it would take Lion. So, because <laughs> I was installing it, I sold it to a friend. It cost almost two hundred dollars to ship. Yeah, country. I can imagine <laughs> this device that was. I think I, I forget if I gave it to him for free. I don't know. I think it was two hundred. I gave it to him for two hundred bucks, including shipping. Maybe I got fifty dollars out of it because I wanted. He needed it. It was useful, and I knew he'd use it for stuff. But uh, and I've got an, I've got an iPhone five S, which I wasn't planning to buy, but my wife's older phone was dying, and we were qualified for subsidies. So she's uh-huh. we're still we're still waiting. It's a pain to switch. Um, we have some SIM issues here, so we've got a. Uh, I've had the five S for a while. She's a dying four S, and she's going to get my old iPhone five. As soon ah, as we okay. can get, do we have to go to a store and get them to do some reprogramming of the SIM? Oh, the SIM card. So now, okay. Yeah. yeah, they're a pain. It's also, I think I have a micro SIM and she has a mini SIM or something, nano SIM or something. So we have to do that. Um, and what else yeah. do I have? I don't know. I've got, uh, I've got, uh, I've got two iPads. We have a very, so I've got two children, ages six, almost seven, and nine. And, um, uh, so I've got all this hand-me-down equipment. So they've got an old iPhone, uh, a relatively recent iPod Touch, and an older iPod Touch. We, I think we've retired the iPhone now because it's sold. It won't run things. They've got a hand-me-down iPad 2 that I replaced with a – I got a gift of an iPad 4. 
Uh, and um, so I have an iPad 4, and, uh, and we've got now, I think, three working phones lying around to use. <laughs> One we've got to swap. So it's a, it's a, I, I think all, and my wife has a laptop. My kids have a laptop because an old one they were using just died. So we decided to get them. They need enough for schoolwork and other stuff. So we have, I think, at this point, we have four working computers, uh, five iPhones in different states of function, two iPod touches, and two tablets. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy, but, but yeah. I'm a technology writer, so there's always a handy. Yeah, that, that's exactly what, it, what, what I was going to say. Yeah, <laughs> you're a tech writer. I am a one too, so you know I, I sort of understand that. So yeah. normally I would sell stuff off, and like I didn't plan to buy a new iPad, and I got one as as a as a gift from Mr. Marker Armin, who's a nice guy. The Christmas that we, I started, he sent me one because oh, I didn't nice. have a Retina iPad, so that was a nice gift on his part. I, and uh, and it's great. I mean, it's a wonderful machine, and then it gave us an extra. But yeah, it's uh, we actually at one level have relatively little technology in the house. Is we had a twenty something inch. HDTV. It was a 7020p. And recently realized my wife and my eyes are have gotten bad enough in the 10 years since we bought that. I'm like, we need a new television. We're going to go crazy. We bought a 32-inch television, which in America <laughs> is like saying you bought a 5-inch television. Yeah, it's, 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 like, it's the same over here. Like, yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> like, like we told you, we bought, I think 32 inches might be the smallest 1080p size you can get. And it yeah, just I think that's this, true, yeah. It just fits in the cabinet we have. And I'm delighted because it was, I forget what it was. It was under $400. It's IPS, so we can move around. It's so much brighter and it's so much crisper. And it's got Netflix built in. And I'm like, but, but we lasted 10 <laughs> plus years until we said, okay, we need something slightly bigger and brighter. For yeah, on iPods. a 10-year-old LCD TV. That's... <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, delighted by it. Yeah, glad my hat's off, man. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> we try. We try. I mean, I have a five-year-old Mac Pro. I try to not spend – my wife, we call – in this household, we say my wife is the early rejector. I'm an early adopter. She's the early rejector. And I'll say, honey, don't you think we need – she's like, we – I'm like, oh, you're right. We don't need it. Or I'll say, Apple just came out with a new uh, Mac update. And she's like, great. Tell me about that in six to eight months when it's at the dot .2 or dot .3 release. <laughs> and I say, you're the smart one here, not yeah, me. Yeah, smart woman. Yeah, I was about <laughs> to say that. <laughs> okay. So uh, I usually ask about software. But since you do use a, an iPad, I usually ask like for uh, like tablet-specific apps, but, uh, apps. And like the ones you actually use. If you could name five like you actually use, not just the you know flavor of the month stuff. So Oh, that's funny. You know, because I actually – it's weird. I recently had to create a folder because there's things that I use all the time and I forget to go to them. Um, I have a weird set of apps I use. So, I mean, I use the New York – I mean, my own app, I will say. But I, I'm in the New York Times app all the time. I resisted subscribing because I think their fees are too high. But I eventually uh, – gave in. I read the New York Times, I feel like, all day on it. Um, I use uh, Google Maps. Um, I, Apple Maps still is not great for me. I use TweetBot. I live in TweetBot. And, um, and I also, uh, I use um, uh, a Fitbit. And I like, I'm in that app regularly because mm -hmm. I want to see where I'm at in terms of, of um, steps and so forth. It's a really nice little app. Um, and then I'm trying to think what my number five app is i have to look at my um uh you know I'm, I'm on the ipad i think what i have launched a lot of the time when i'm on there is i don't use it that often anymore i use it to, to view things and test things but i'm either on a laptop or my iphone most of the time when i'm like enjoy consuming something but when i'm on an ipad the comiXology app um, ah, I'm a comic okay. fan. so that's kind of like i think comiXology is probably launched is like 30 to like if you excluded safari it's probably like 30 to 50% of my iPad usage is Comixology. <laughs> I could just have a Comixology ta tablet and it would be fine. Okay. Uh, and then my last question, which is also always the same. Mm. Uh, if you had to pick one piece of tech that's made the biggest impact on your life, I know it's like a, like a hippie question, but bear with me. Like, what would that be? If you had to pick one piece of tech. 
Well, I'm going to give you a funny answer. Uh, well, um, I, I've gotten funny answers, so that's the, not a problem the, at all. So the biggest piece of tech is I had a blocked artery uh, that I found out about last year. I have a, a stent in my heart, and um, it prevented me from having to have open heart surgery. And it's a wonderful bit of technology. It's about 25 years old, and um, uh, they put a um, a. St- a stent. I'm, wait, I'm calling it a stent. Yeah, wait, now I have to make sure I'm using the right term. I, I sometimes call it a shunt. That's not right. A shunt is totally different. A stent. Yes, it is a stent. <laughs> Just a take stent. It. So this is what marvelous piece of technology. It is a drug-coated stent. It's a smell. You know what this is? I don't know if this is – you must. I'm sure you have the technology, but you may not have heard of the term. No, I, I've never heard the, the term uh, stent. So, yeah, so okay. a stent, it's, it, uh, it's, it's a specialized thing. If you don't have heart condition, you won't find out about it. And so I had a clogged artery, which is a whole other story. It's not, my health is actually very good. Um, and um, I had cancer uh, about 15 years ago, 16 years ago, and had uh, as part of it radiation therapy. And part of it exposed my heart, even though they build a shield around it. And when you have radiation therapy for cancer and your heart is in the field, it's possible you will develop early onset heart disease. Unfortunately, mine was very treatable and after some issues was discovered. So I go into the hospital and they're like, they're doing a treadmill test and they say, uh, we don't like the results of this test. You need to get a catheter inserted in you and we're going to do an angiogram. We want to take pictures of your heart and we may need to put a stent in. I'm like, ah, you know, I showed up thinking I was going to be running on a treadmill. So they do all this and the stent is, it's a metal sleeve. It's an expandable metal sleeve and they have something. So there's something called balloon angioplasty, which is an old technique too, where they, they slide a catheter into your vein. They take pictures first and then they slide this thing in and they inflate it and it opens up the vein. It pushes all the fat and clack and stuff off to the sides and it can prevent it. But but that's one technique. A stent, they put this metal sleeve over the balloon. They slide it in and it expands. And now I have a metal tunnel. You're joking. You have a no, metal like I have okay. a metal tunnel in my heart. It's coat it's a drug coated well you go read about this because you're a young man. You will understand about this as you get older. This is one of the most miraculous things. And I, after it happened I tweeted I didn't live tweet, but they don't fully anesthetize you for it. I was awake and this you know slightly sedated so I could see what's going on. It doesn't hurt because it's all inside your veins. You have no nerves there. Yeah but and, you have uh, like a steel vein now. That's awesome. steel vein. it's awesome. And it's not a cure. What it does is it it's it opens up the vein and it will stay there forever. Um, but it, it it gives me the time to make any other changes, so the drug, you know, drug changes I need to make, or lifestyle, or food, or whatever, exercise, and I was actually doing a lot fine. It was the radiation therapy that really, yeah, yeah. The hangout, and I have a very good prognosis. They're very happy about the response, but but it's a great piece of technology. It was it was put into uh, heavy use starting about twenty five years ago. It's sometimes overused. Like there are other techniques that can be used. George Bush, George uh, uh, the younger George Bush, just got one put in, and and a lot of second guessers are like, he didn't need a stent. He should have done the doctor is over whatever. Um, we have yeah, but that's here. like that's a metal vein. That's it's awesome. great. It's great. It's a. It's like you know the you know the, do the thing the Chinese finger trap. Oh yeah, the, put, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like that. You, they you pull it out and it's got uh, it's connected so that it's it opens up like a it's got a mesh in it. So they open it out and it extends and um, it just it keeps that it's a it's a opens it keeps the tunnel from collapsing and uh, and it's great and so my heart heals around it and it's drug coated so that it resists um, platelets and uh, uh, form uh, from sticking and I'm taking a bunch of medication some long term and some short that prevent that from getting clogged but. Uh, I, it's not that I wouldn't be alive without it, but I probably would have had – if this were 25 years ago, they would have opened up my chest and done vein grafts and God knows what. And I would have been out of commission for months and recovered and I probably would have never been quite the same again. Right. And instead, I was in a, a something called a cath lab, not an operating room, for 90 minutes. 60 of it, they took pictures. 30 was inserting the stent and that's it. 
And I went home a couple days later and I felt fine almost immediately. That's awesome, man. That's that's yeah. my favorite technology okay, right that, now. Yeah, sold, 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 sold. That's, okay. Oh, man. Uh, Glenn, th- thanks for doing this. It's uh, a pleasure I, to talk to you. Thanks for having me yeah. on. Okay, th- this is it. This is, this is the show. <laughs>